The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day as we wrap up the week. Of course, in the news today, big crop report coming out today. A lot of numbers. We'll go over all those on Monday. Secretary Purdue says USDA preparing for the second round of market facilitation program payments could come as late as early as late this month or perhaps early in December. And the Secretary also saying he's hopeful a third round will not be needed. But it looks like the second round of MFP payments will be coming later this month or early next month. Coming up today, we're going to look at our meat export numbers. How are we doing? How are we uh, doing as far as selling our meat products around the globe? Numbers up, down, how are they being impacted by trade issues? We'll talk with the Economist for the U.S. Meat Export Federation coming up today. We're going to talk weather with the director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub as uh, we head into this winter, still trying to get this harvest wrapped up and looking ahead to next year already. And we're going to talk about the ongoing battle with soybean cyst nematode and some of the things that you can be doing uh, in that battle. We'll talk with a nematologist from Iowa State. But we're going to start things off today with our good friend Joe Gill from Chasm Radio, KASM in Albany, Minnesota. Joe, thanks for joining us. Uh, how's harvest going up in your area? Well, Mike, good morning. Yeah, not too bad. We we woke up to uh, temperatures in the teens. We had near 10 degrees uh, yesterday morning. In the last uh, 7 to 10 days, there's been a lot getting done, a lot of beans and a lot of corn coming out. And what are you hearing about yields, moisture levels, things like that? You know, that's the battle right now, Mike, is uh, we just didn't see a, a proper dry down. A lot of high moisture uh, values we're getting, which means, well, we got to dry our corn, but which also goes over into a, a propane situation, which I, I really wasn't aware if it was affecting our area, Mike, but now we're starting to get a few comments saying, yeah, we're having issues in that category as well. So are you hearing from farmers that are having trouble getting propane? We understand the supply is good, but the pipeline's backed up, and uh, it's an infrastructure logistical issue getting propane where it needs to be, and a lot of high-moisture grain coming in needs dried. What are you hearing in your area? You know, it seems to be hit and miss, Mike. Uh, I know I had a few folks uh, approach me saying, yeah, they can no longer go ahead because they're out and they just can't get any. On the other hand, people said we're we're just fine. We did just a... informal poll yesterday and i had roughly about six to seven percent of folks were having propane issues so uh, i know it was on a small scale uh, of those folks reporting in but of course for those who who can't get it, it it's a big deal and they have to kind of do something in the meantime at one farmer said well we're, we're doing some earlage right now instead of doing what we should be doing until we can get some more others are saying they're looking into storing their their high moisture corn until it becomes more available or they make some decisions on what to do. 
As far as yields are concerned, uh, about what was expected or better than expected, what are you hearing? You know, from what I hear, Mike, it's it's probably all right. It's maybe normal to average. Um, we have a lot of silage in this area. Um, a lot of folks, when they said they looked at the cobs and such, they said things just weren't quite mature where they should be. That's the biggest thing I heard. We just didn't have those growing degree uh, growing degree days and that, and that warm span of weather. Um, so, so things out there, they said, just fell under proper or full maturity. That's the biggest complaint I've heard this season, Mike. We see the weekly progress numbers. Uh, what would you say in your area? How much do you have done? And uh, and here we are now, a weekend of November. How far behind is everybody? Boy, it's it's really kind of uh, depends upon where you are. And this I ninety four corridor here, like I'd mentioned, the last week or two, you saw a lot of corn, a lot of beans. They made quick work and got them out. You go a little bit to our north. We had a few folks uh, traveling uh, to our north and to the northeast. And they said, boy, there's just a lot of corn out there yet. They said it was very hard to find a field that was harvested already. We still have people still getting stuck. Uh, we, we've had some of these cold mornings here. In turn, other guys, which are 30 miles to the south, will say, well, geez, I can't get uh, our uh, uh, tillage equipment in the ground because things are hardening up already. So we're kind of seeing the flip side of each side of the coin but boy, oh boy, there, there's still a, a lot of corn, especially here in the fields here around our area. We're talking with Joe Gill from our affiliate CASM Radio, KASM, Albany, Minnesota. Joe, big dairy area there where you are at. Uh, what are you hearing from dairy producers and, and their challenges this year? You know, Mike, what last week we saw finally uh, milk futures in the $20 range. I tried to do some research. It has to be six or seven years since we've seen a, a $20 milk future. Uh, we saw that and it was almost awkward to report because I haven't said it for so many years. And then the last two days here, we're seeing December futures or last 36 hours. Uh, December futures down 58 cents this morning. They're down 18 cents. Uh, there's, uh, I guess a lot of people are, are breathing a, a cautious sigh of relief as we're seeing some of these futures uh, holding in that 1918, we did see them at $20 uh, for a while. We're also seeing a, a bit of a slowdown on, we had a lot of herds uh, being liquidated. We're seeing a bit of a slowdown in that category. Uh, the one main concern or two concerns we're saying right now, Mike, is uh, there might be a lack of good quality alfalfa, and there's going to be a lack of bedding available when it comes to straw or some uh, cornstalk bales as well. We're, there's a bill right now that would um, reform the ag labor uh, policies in this country, and it's hope that would help uh, industries like the dairy industry uh, attract and retain workers. How big of an issue is that in your area, the ag labor issue? I would say it's 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 fairly uh, an issue that's talked about, Mike. You know, we, we live in an area where usually, uh, you know, one of the kids or two or three or four of the kids would be helping out on the farm, and and families aren't as big as they used to be, or you'd have a few individuals from the, the local high school help you out, and there seems to be a lack of interest in, in wanting to milk cows or do field work or do anything farm-related. Um, that's a concern for a lot of folks. You're seeing a lot of these people who are, are kind of running out of hands and running out of time, and I think they would appreciate some some sort of a regulation put in place to make things easier, more regulated, but um, I'd say it's, it's definitely on the minds of, of many around here as well. 
All right, Joe, we'll let you go. Thank you for the update. Looking forward to seeing you next week and many of our uh, fellow broadcasters when we gather in Kansas City for our annual meeting, the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. We'll look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, sounds good, Mike. Look forward to next week. And I know you're going to be talking weather on the program. According to our Onion Lady report, Mike, it says November <laughs> it's going to be dry. So, Okay, we'll see if our guest later agrees with that or not, okay? But you, okay. hard to go against the Onion Lady, right? Well, you, you don't argue. You just kind of go with it. No, so. That's right. Okay, thanks, Joe. See you next week. All right, have a good day. <laughs> Joe Gill from Chasm Radio, our affiliate in Albany, Minnesota. Up next, we will look at our sales of meat to uh, uh, around the world. Where are we selling the most? How are the numbers comparing to a year ago? We'll talk with Aaron Bohr, economist for the U.S. Meat Export Federation, up next here on AOA. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres. That's smart. With Credenz Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, we're going to discuss meat exports with Aaron Bohr, economist for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Aaron, thanks for joining us. I believe you are in Arizona for your meeting, and I'm sure you're not dealing with temperatures in the teens today. That's right. Good morning, Mike, from sunshine and cactus country. <laughs> All right, Aaron, let's talk about uh, our meat exports. How are we doing? Well, uh, all things considered, quite well. And I guess the September numbers were not as exciting as I had hoped, frankly. But then when I reflect and remember where we were in September, it sort of makes sense. And the the bigger numbers are yet to come. So, um for example, I was in Chengdu, China in September, late September, and hearing of a lot of business being done, but that, of course, wouldn't show up in the September numbers. So just one example of, I think, the, the bigger export um, numbers are yet to show up. Yeah, we have seen an increase in the purchases by China, so we'll start seeing those numbers reflected, right, in, in future reports. Right, exactly. And I mean, if we talk about pork first, so those September numbers were still up. We include pork and variety meats still up 13% from last year. And China did drive, you know, much of that growth, but we were just comparing to such a low number last year. And they did come off a bit from the tear of uh, those summer months and the July record and near the July record that we saw in August. Um, but again, that was just a little bit of a lull and still a pretty big number of over 50,000 tons when you look at China Hong Kong combined and um, certainly expecting bigger volumes to that market through the end of the quarter and on into 2020 uh, despite 
still having the tariff disadvantages. Which hopefully are going to be uh, resolved at least somewhat, but we wait and see on that. And meanwhile, while we expect uh, and hope to sell a lot more pork into China with the their situation with African swine fever. We're also we also often hear that uh, protein overall they'll be looking to buy. So it could be good news for some other uh, sectors. Well, it could be more beef, more poultry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so much optimism, and clearly been optimism on off in the markets on this. But yes, China needs all protein, and uh, we could see U.S. beef. Um, huge potential if there's a you know a real breakthrough deal for China right now that high quality market in China uh, we're there and we're still doing big volumes considering our huge tariff disadvantage um, but Australia really owns that grain fed market and so their grain fed exports to China are up over 50% and over 50,000 tons so far this year and we're doing, you know, on a good month, which September was, just over a 1,000 tons a month into China. And so with a deal, uh, yes, we expect potential for, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of U.S. beef. And um, it's quite realistic. And that would be, frankly, a drop in the bucket in their growing and huge market. So huge potential. And, yes, everyone's still hoping for that phase one China agreement and U.S. poultry, I mean, that would be important for our whole protein market here if we could, again, sell poultry into China, and that's a clear, uh, easier substitute if if you talk dollars per pound for their pork shortage. We're talking with U.S. Meat Export Federation economist Aaron Bohr. All right, Aaron, let's talk other than China. Where are our big markets for meat? Yes, absolutely, and I think... In a way, 2020 could be the year of Japan, and we saw Japan pull back again in the September data for both beef and pork. But if we think about it, it also makes sense because if we assume and we do that this Japan-U.S. trade agreement is implemented in early 2019, uh, hopefully the start of January, which we have no reason to expect that will not happen. Uh, We fully think it will. And Japan remains number one on a value basis for both U.S. beef and pork. And so they're kind of waiting uh, for those tariff reductions to come into play and then come in and buy strongly. And they're also watching these tight global protein supplies. And Japan has some of the most savvy buyers in the world. So they're seeing the potential for Australia to tighten up on beef. And they're watching China buy more of, of everything from everyone. And so these tariff reductions or a level playing field for U.S. red meat can't come at a better time. And we do expect that to move the needle again into that number one value market. And, I mean, Korea has just been awesome again this year for U.S. beef. And U.S. pork is holding, you know, pretty close to those big record numbers of last year. And Korea does also have African swine fever. They've been able to contain that um, pretty close around that demilitarized zone. So, so far, we're optimistic they'll be able to keep it under control. They have a lot of experience with animal disease. Uh, But even so, we're seeing demand for imported U.S. pork and imported U.S. beef um, because of some consumer misperceptions. And so those opportunities are expected to continue and, of course, just remaining an on-fire market generally. And we've seen widespread growth. um, Yep, go ahead. I was going to say, it just sounds like uh, 
hearing you describe it, we are so close to, uh, and I don't want to get overly optimistic, but it, it sounds like we're just on the verge of maybe an explosion in meat exports. Is that is that accurate or not? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's totally how I feel. I kind of go hot cold on this because there's just so much going on. But when I sit back and just, you know, kind of take in what's happening in the world, I just don't see how 2020 isn't... Um, blowing the doors off on our exports. And, again, this is a factor of continued demand, which is critical, and like you said, the growing protein demand, that's really what's underpinning all of this. And you're overlaying that with global protein shortage, essentially. And, you know, on the beef side, we're not really seeing big growth anywhere. You have some growth in production in South America, um, but still not major. And um, Australia will tighten up at some point uh, if this drought ever breaks. So on both the beef and pork side, um, you're looking at relatively limited supplies and continued demand. And the U.S. were the best position to grow because we have been handicapped for the past year, two years. So when you look at the potential to really move the needle on this global trade, it comes out of the United States. Yeah, 2020 could be a huge year. What about Mexico? And Mexico, yes, of course, critically important. Our team down there, it's been fun being with them this week because they are, they're also taking in this situation and thinking, wow, we have to be super aggressive on uh, marketing the value add and what, why you want to continue to buy U.S. beef and pork because we expect prices to go up. So Mexico remains a critical top uh, volume market for us and obviously having those tariffs removed on pork back in May was huge, and you've seen those values um, on our shipments to Mexico increase immediately because we were paying those tariffs here. American producers were paying those tariffs. So with that normalization in trade, we've seen some rebound, especially on the value side. But our team in Mexico is really focusing on, uh, you know, just trying to, again, reiterate why you should continue to buy U.S. beef and pork because we're looking at a higher price environment going into 2020. But so far, they've um, they've remained strong on beef and their offtake, including in variety meats, even at higher prices, uh, along with those higher value and value alternative beef cuts, which we're doing on barbecue promotions and in-store retail, you know, you name it, kind of across the board to keep pushing those products. But yeah, it remains a, a super important and mainstay market. So it sounds like a very competitive situation, which is good if you are a seller like the United States and uh, there's going to be all this demand, it sounds like. Yes, and I I also get a little nervous being sounding like a cheerleader. <laughs> That's not typically my role as a pessimistic economist. Um, but again, the, the U.S., is, we are the best positioned, um, and we do expect this demand to continue, and it's kind of just getting started. And even if we go back to prices, China's prices uh, didn't really take off until August, and so this shortage has just been setting in um, in the last, you know, several weeks, essentially. So we're kind of just getting started. 2020 should be a very interesting year, and hopefully, uh, you know, we're looking for good news in in the ag economy. It sounds like uh, meat exports, uh, the situation for the livestock sector could maybe help uh, lead the way with that uh, that demand that's growing around the world. Aaron, thank you very much. We'll let you get back to your meeting. Uh, appreciate you taking time to be with us. Thanks so much, Mike. Have a good one. You, you too. U.S. Meat Export Federation economist Aaron Bohr. All right, up next... 
We'll look at the weather. The, the weather we've had in 2019 we know has been a huge challenge. What do we expect the rest of the year and going into next year? We're going to talk with the director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis Toddy joins us next on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. With Make-A-Wish, the impossible becomes possible. A girl battling cancer can become a race car driver battling the course. The boy showing all the nurses his fire trucks can take the helm of a real one. Wishes can give kids with critical illnesses the strength to keep fighting, get better, and grow up. Where there's a wish, there's a way. Wishes need you. Visit Make-A-Wish at Wish.org. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain futures trending lower overnight, defensive tone an hour into the day on Friday. An official from the White House casting doubts on report that the U.S. and China have agreed to drop tariffs upon the signing of a mini-trade deal. That's the word from Peter Navarro, White House Director of Trade Policy. Movement to the downside, limited. Traders still waiting for the release of USDA's monthly WASDE report at noon today. Private exporters reporting to USDA sales of 217,040 metric tons of corn for delivery to unknown destinations. Exporters reporting sales of 270,000 metric tons of soybeans for delivery to unknown destinations. But again, an hour into the trading day, January soybeans down a nickel at 9.31 and a quarter. December corn down a quarter of a cent. 375. Wheat, Chicago, December, down three and a half at 509. Kansas City, December, down a penny and three quarters, 423. Minneapolis Spring Wheat, December, down two at 516 and three quarters of a cent. For livestock at American Live Cattle Futures, we're steady to 45 cents higher. December up 35 at 119.35. Feeder cattle, January up 35 at 146.12. Saw some dress deals on a cash basis yesterday in Nebraska. Bucker, two better, 181 to 182. Lean Hog Futures, December contract, 25 cents higher, 64.55. February up 17 at 73.95. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture, Rusty Halverson, American Ag Network. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. 
Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. What a challenge weather has been in 2019. And uh, is that going to continue into the winter and into next year? Let's talk with Dennis Toddy, director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Is this, uh, when you look at it from an historical historical perspective, I, I know a lot of people say, let's just get 2019 over and move on. It's just been such a bad year in many ways weather-wise. Is it a historical year? Well, it's it's interesting when you look at it. If you look at the main part of the growing season itself, it really would have, wouldn't have been too bad a growing season. Things, temperatures weren't too extreme. There was dry in, in the southeast part of the Corn Belt. The problem was we were wet last fall and wet spring, and that delayed everything, and then we got wet right at harvest time. So the main part of the growing season wasn't too bad. It was, those, it was what was sandwiched around it was the real issue for us. Uh, yeah, there are. We certainly did set some records in the spring, especially in the way of precipitation, and not record cold, but but quite cold. And then we've we've kind of gapped that, or put, put you know, put on here now too. We've turned quite cold over the last thirty-ish days or so, and we kind of whiplash from September to October. So that's maybe more of the issue is this flip-flopping back and forth in, in the temperatures and also in the way of precipitation. We think back to a year ago, and so little fall field work got done. We're talking about the need of having an early spring and being able to get out there and get some things done. did not happen. So now here we are again now, still trying to wrap up harvest for many, but also looking ahead to next year, and are we going to be able to get a better start on things? Uh, uh, how, how's it shaping up? What do you think? Um, we have some... Concerns. I'm trying to decide what the right word is. Certainly there is a level of risk of problems going into the beginning of next season. Why is that? Well, just what you alluded to, we have delayed harvest this year because of wet conditions, delayed development, um, problems with, dry, you know, with, with drying, all kinds of different things. So we have wet soils that are going to likely stay that way. Uh, you know, we're, it, it, since you don't have anything growing in the soils now, it's hard to dry them down much more. Temperatures are cold, so you don't dry down. And we're very close to freezing up in the Dakotas, and that's going to start working its way across the area. So we're going to kind of lock things in in the soil where we are right now. So that puts us at some level of risk because much of our soil profile across the Corn Belt, especially northern Corn Belt, is, is, is mostly full, so it doesn't have any capability to take up much more moisture. Eastern Corn Belt, not too bad yet. They were dry, so they've, they've got some, uh, uh, some capability to take up a little bit more, more moisture. So what that means is what happens in winter, what happens in early spring. And that's where our, our, our concern becomes, is we, can't, we could get warm and dry uh, late winter, early spring, and get us uh, you know, not out in too bad shape, but things have to happen the right way, and I'm not sure things are going to happen that way to get us out uh, out early in the spring. So that's that's where our level of concern comes from. And we have some areas where flooding has been such an issue all year, and the threat of it continues even here in November. Exactly, exactly. 
our, our colleagues from NOAA have been putting out messaging people on this because the you know the whole hydrologic system, what we're meaning, rivers, soil moisture, lakes, especially in the northern plains, uh, upper Midwest, there's there's everything's full, uh, so there's no place for water to go, and, and that's a problem because any additional precipitation, uh, if you have that on top of it, produces runoff very quickly. Uh, so, you know, a one-inch rainfall is, is unlikely this time of year, but a one-inch rainfall is going to start producing runoff fairly quickly. So uh, certainly places in, in the Dakotas, uh, along major river systems, Minnesota, uh, have some level of risk for flooding. Uh, the James River in South Dakota, uh, you know, parts of the Red River, uh, certainly the James River, there's concern about being in flood stage all through the winter, uh, just and, and water freezing in place up in that area because there's so much water out there. So uh, that's, that is all connected to this overall concern we have with what's going to happen this winter and what will happen into the spring, that, that we just won't be able to remove that water before we get to spring. So that if anything does happen, uh, you know, not it doesn't even have to be a big event next spring. If it's moderately wet, we we're we're right back to where we start. We're talking with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, it doesn't seem like it wasn't that long ago, was it, that we were watching the drought monitor map for the Midwest and very concerned about how dry it was. It, that now seems like uh, a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Well, I, I mean. Are you talking about this year or, or several years ago? I guess I'll, well, I'll question that. It seems like just a couple years ago we were watching that thing all the time, and we were talking about is this huge drought moving from west to east and going to come across the Midwest, and we were really concerned, and all of a sudden it seems like everything just turned wet. Well, I mean, that's part of our problem that we have going on right now is we seem to be having quick, uh, quick earth shifts between wet and dry conditions. And we saw that even this year, that, you know, the whole Corn Belt was wet. If you look at in, in the springtime, we were wet, and then we turned dry mid-year from Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, even parts of Iowa and Missouri that the drought monitor uh, reached over those areas. And it, it still continues somewhat in the southeast part of the U.S. up to the Ohio Valley, though the recent rains are, are making that easier. So you went from wet, and then you had fairly decent dryness to showing on the drought on the drought monitor and then and then bouncing back to wet conditions again. So that's part of our, our overall problem. Yeah, we've had some some longer term drought issues kind of have come and gone. Um, fortunately we've not had too 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 widespread a serious drought, I guess going back to, to twenty twelve would be the last big one. We've had on and off situations throughout the Corn Belt during different times of, of the last several years. Without wading into the whole climate change debate, are we seeing a shift? Are we seeing some changes in our in our seasons? Are, do you think we're getting into later springs, longer, maybe longer growing seasons later into the year? Is, is that kind of a shift happening or not? Well, the, if you talk to most producers, and when we go out and talk to people, if you if you ask them, you know, what do you see changing? That's the one thing that comes up most times is. God, we're getting wetter. We're getting bigger rainfall events, and that's getting harder for us to deal with. And if you look at what has happened in the way of precipitation all across the Corn Belt area, we're, we, we've overall we're, we're receiving more precipitation. So that's a problem for us 
uh, when you're trying to, to, to deal with, with agriculture. In places that are already somewhat wet, that's an even worse problem. I mean, in, in the Northern Plains, they've been able to take advantage of that somewhat in, in, in changing into some corn and soybeans in that area. But the, the further problem with this is that uh, some of these rains have been coming during our, our, what we call our transition seasons, fall and spring. And most ag producers will go, I'll ask them, do you want more rain in the spring and fall? And you get this, no. You know, and, and that's exactly the problem we've had is that uh, we, the, the, the bigger rainfalls that are happening in spring and fall really de- cause real problems with our ability to, to do spring field work, to get planted in, 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 in good shape, or if you do get out and plant it in good shape, how many replant issues have we had? Uh, you know, and I've, we've heard stories in the last several years of more than one replant, where you, where you got out, you had to replant, it got washed out, you had to replant again. So that's a real problem. And, and the falls have not all been as bad, but, you know, we've had two in a row now, and if you look at the trends in the northern plains, particularly our falls have been getting wetter. So that are, those are real issues for us when we're dealing with, with uh, what's going on. It was interesting in Ohio this year, I was talking with a person in their state climate office and said they actually had a near record early last freeze. Their last freeze was early April or something like that. But you also saw what they were able to get planted. It wasn't because it was too cold. It was because it was too wet and they couldn't make anything happen. So that's been a, that's been a tougher issue for us to deal with in agriculture going on. And... Um, you know, I, I think that's a problem we're going to continue to deal with. Just throws the, what we consider normal schedules off, and it seems like you're always trying to catch up or adjust. Uh, finally, Dennis, uh, for those still trying to get this year's harvest done, how's it looking at November into December? Well, I mean, there's some, like, this whole year has kind of been an, an issue of, of trade-offs, good news, bad news. The good news is over most of the Corn Belt, except for maybe the southern and eastern areas, precipitation is going to be relatively light, it looks like, for much of the rest of November, even maybe into early December. So that's good news in that we're not adding moisture to our situation. That's, that's a positive. Um, also, getting into early next week, people I'm sure are aware, and even to the middle part of, of November, we're going to be cold, quite cold for this time of year, record-setting cold in some places, you know, 15 to 20 degrees below average in, in locations. Um, so also good and bad. Uh, it's been good from a, a prospect of reducing some of the disease and toxicity issues we had. It's also going to start firming up some ground in the northern plains, so people still trying to get harvest out in those really wet areas and maybe frozen to be able to get out and get that harvest done. So um, that part has been good. Downsides are, uh, you know, colder temperatures. Things still don't dry quite as well because there's not as much drying capability. So, uh, again, those trade-offs, good and bad, also cold from a standpoint of being out there dealing with things. Dennis, as always, appreciate your perspective. We will talk again. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. You guys take care. Dennis Toddy, director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Up next, the ongoing battle with soybean cyst nematodes. Stay with us on AOA.
Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 2019 has had more than its share of uh, challenges for our crop production. But one of the challenges you may not think about if you're a soybean grower, but you should, is soybean cyst nematode. Joining us now is Greg Tilka. He's a nematologist with Iowa State. Greg, thank you for joining us. Um, And here we are now with a late harvest and lots of challenges just trying to get it done. But uh, should there be some things farmers could be doing now and and need to, if they can, take the time to do in the battle against soybean cyst nematode? Sure thing, Mike. Uh, Appreciate you having me on the show. And um, at this time of year, I like to remind folks that there's something you can do now that will set you up for success in 2020. And that is sample fields for soybean cyst nematode. Um, we've had lots of uh, water moving soil around this growing season, and even if there were fields that weren't flooded, um, there are many, many fields across the Midwest that have not been sampled for soybean cyst nematode, if at all, it's been many, many years. So fall is a great time to do that. Um, university labs have, um, have facilities to process those samples. Many private soil test labs do as well. And doing that this fall for fields that will be planted as soybeans in 2020 really is going to set the stage for success in the next growing season. For some, they say, wow, it's hard to find time. We're just trying to get the harvest done. Yeah, I feel their pain. And um, my crew harvested our last experiment yesterday in the snow. Um, but, you know, if, if it doesn't get done this fall, then you can always scramble and, and do it in the spring as well. Um, I understand that there's only so many hours in a day and daylight hours, um, but, but also um, just it's a valuable thing to be done, whether it be done yet this fall or early in the spring. Um, you, you can't manage something that you don't know you have, and, and it really we need to have farmers throughout the Midwest do a reality check and, and see if they have it and what their numbers are. What about those flooded acres, those prevent plant acres that uh, will probably, hopefully, come back into production next year? If so, uh, can should a farmer say, well, I didn't grow on those last year, I didn't plant, they were flooded, so I don't have to worry about SCN? Well, you know, the, the flooding is, is kind of a double-edged sword. You're, you're right, if, if it was flooded to the point where it wasn't planted, um, and they're not going to grow soybeans there in 2020, then it's probably a push, and they don't need to worry about it. But flooding moves SCN, and so I'd hate to have a, a disaster show up in 2020 if flooding moved SCN into fields, and then they grow um, soybeans there, and it, and it really wallops their yield. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So the flooding, if you're coming back to soybeans in those acres, you're not just automatically protected because you didn't plant there last year? 
Nope, that, that's exactly right. The, the problem with soybean cyst nematode is it's like the energizer bunny, and there is nothing that's going to knock the snot out of it in a single year. You know, flooding, cold, wet soils will probably slow it down. Certainly not having a host for a year, not having a soybean crop for a year will slow it down. But th- that's the reason SCN is such a terrible problem throughout the Midwest is um, there is nothing that knocks it completely down, and it can survive a year of corn. Of course, the numbers will drop. It can survive a year of unplanted uh, crop, and numbers will drop. But there is a residual laying there in the field, and when that soybean crop is planted, it's back off to the races in terms of numbers. So you test, see what your levels are, then what can you do? So then, fortunately, we've got a couple, three things that can be done. Um, of course, depending on how numbers, how high your numbers are, if they're really high, then it would be best to grow corn. And by really high, we're talking maybe ten or 12,000 eggs per half a cup of soil. Um, and, and farmers should look to their soil testing lab for advice on what's kind of low, medium, and high. But then there are resistant soybean varieties, and there's lots and lots of those to pick from. And there are new seed treatments that are on the market that are going to help keep the the resistant soybean varieties effective. Because another problem we're battling through most of the Midwest is the resistant soybeans that farmers have been growing for a couple decades all had the same resistance genes. And as a result of that, the nematode is starting to become resistant to the resistance, much like weeds have become resistant to certain herbicides. So um, it all starts with testing and knowing your numbers. Then you can make a plan moving forward. If numbers are super high, you might consider corn or sunflower or, or wheat or some non-host. If you're good to go with soybeans, get a good resistant soybean and think about a seed treatment as well. But we're losing a lot of yield to soybean cyst nematode, and a lot of producers probably don't even realize it. Yep, that, that's exactly right, and it, it's really frustrating for me. I, I liken it to having high blood pressure. You know, there's folks walking around every day with high blood pressure don't know they have it, and um, some of them suffer some catastrophic health problems, and it's a very similar situation for SCN health High blood pressure is not a killer if you know you've got it and you manage it. And the same with soybean cyst nematode. But it's SCN's causing hidden yield loss um, for farmers. And it's just, um, in this day and age in particular, with low commodity prices, we need every stinking bushel we can get off that field. So it's a very simple soil test and a relatively inexpensive fee to get the sample processed. And uh, the results that you get could save hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Real quick, are we making progress? We are. I sometimes paint too bleak of a picture. Uh, lots of soybean checkoff-funded research is happening. Lots of private industry uh, research is happening. But we all need to be vigilant, and the farmers are the ones growing the crop. So we need them to kind of know what they've got and manage it with the tools we've got, and there's better days ahead. So we've made progress, but we could do even more, and it starts with that uh, with that soil test. Greg, thanks yep. a lot. Always good to talk with you. Yeah, it's great talking to you too, Mike. Thank you very much. Take care, Iowa State nematologist Greg Tilka.
Well, with that, we're going to wrap things up for today and for the week. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Coming up on Monday, we'll get back into the weather and what's ahead to finish out this harvest. Also, we'll be going over the uh, crop report numbers and uh, keep you up to date on all what's going on with China and the other news. Have a great weekend. Please join us again on Monday here on Adams on Agriculture. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With 